Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Back in May of 2019, I interviewed my next guest author about her debut novel. It was a highly memorable interview for me. I recall how moved I was by her book at the time, one of those powerful reads that brought me to tears, so raw in its exploration of grief and the effects of trauma, so life-affirming. Just thinking about it now gives me shivers. Two years on from that and she's back with another heart-wrenching but no less captivating and moving story about love, loss and dealing with grief. It was a Charlie in the Chocolate Factory meets Harry Potter set in the tiny Queensland town of Boona. The book is called The Emporium of Imagination and the author is the multi-talented Tabitha Bird. Welcome, Tab. Oh, thank you so much. What a beautiful introduction. It's great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) It is so absolutely delightful to have you. I'm so thrilled to have the chance to speak with you again about your second book, The Emporium of Imagination, two years in the making. And I wanted to ask you, did the reality of this book match your expectations? And by that I mean, did the idea that you have in your head make it to the pages of this book? Oh, that's a lovely question. I think that I probably exceeded what I had in my head because as many of my readers will know, I do not plot any of my novels, which makes for some gloriously messy drafts, but also some absolutely beautiful moments where I'm experiencing the joy and the magic in the same manner as my characters. Yeah. (laughs) Does that answer? Sorry. (laughs) It's always an interesting and fascinating thing for me to read a book and then wonder whether or not, because it happens to me, I don't, when I start a book, I don't know whether or not it's going to match what I have in my head, the end result that is. And so it's always an interesting thing for me to ask somebody whether this wonderful creation that you've able to hold in your hands, was that what you envisaged when you started writing? Yeah, I think I've really learned to let go, especially now writing my second book. I've really learned to trust my own process and just trust that the magic will turn up at the right time. Um, and that I will really use my own intuition to make my way through the story and that all things can be saved in editing (laughs) and to really enjoy the process. You know, for me, I think, you know, there's plenty of ways to torture yourself in life. Why do it with writing? Oh, well said. You know, it's fair to say that both of your books fall into the magical realism genre and that in reading them, readers need to take a leap of faith and dive into these stories with an open mind and, dare I say, an open heart to explore the wonders of a different reality. So I wanted to ask you, was it always your intention to write these kinds of stories? Interestingly enough, I actually started out with A Lifetime of Impossible Days, which was my first one not even realizing that what I was writing was magical realism. It actually took an agent, a literary agent, to point it out to me and she happened to say it while she was giving feedback on the book. And, um, of course, I just did the whole "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh and then madly Googled magical realism and realized, in fact, that that was exactly what I was writing and that was what I was naturally obsessed with. So I didn't start out choosing it I kind of feel like the genre chose me and just naturally showed up in my work and then of course I've learned you know more about it and I would like to think that with every book I write I get better and better and better Um, 
And yeah, just that real honoring that readers are going on a journey with me. And I am asking them to let go of some of the things that they know to be real in inverted commas there, um, or quotation marks. But uh, so there's that trust, I'm asking them to trust me. And I'm also asking them to believe that I know what I'm doing. And I'm going to introduce them to something that hopefully they will find magical, but hopefully they will be able to see reality in a slightly different way that might open their minds up to some new things perhaps and so tab if you're in any doubt at all i loved this book i loved loved enoch your 20 your 10 year old protagonist who is grieving the loss of his dad i loved Anne, the woman who is nursing her own grief and carrying a guilty secret and i also love the enigmatic earlitage hubert umbre if that's the way you say his name yes that's it absolutely magical tale but for those listeners who haven't had the pleasure of reading this book as I have can you tell me more about it absolutely so in a nutshell the Emporium of Imagination is a very unusual shop that travels the world offering vintage wares and extraordinary phones now the vintage wares themselves are extraordinary as well because if you come in and you buy them they will connect you to something that you grieve or to someone that you've lost in a way that's really meaningful for that person who bought the actual item. And the phones themselves give characters in my story that one last phone call with a lost loved one or with some opportunity or dream that they have let go in the past that they are grieving over or wish that they hadn't in some way, shape or form. So that's the emporium and then yeah it arrives in Boona so Boona is where I live it's a very small little country town that I love so it arrives in Boona in the early hours of the morning with Berlitage Hubert Umbre who is the store's custodian but he has a bit of a problem he discovers that he is actually disappearing and that he only has 21 days left to find the new custodian of the emporium of imagination And that's a bit of a problem for him because in order to do that, he's going to have to face some of his own secrets and some of his own grief. So I wanted to ask you then, the inspiration for this story? So there were two dual inspirations for this story. The first one started whilst I just happened to be flicking through some of my emails and I happened upon this email from a group called Atlas Obscurus, which I highly recommend if you are a reader who just likes interesting things or you're a writer who wants ideas to just pop in your inbox. Highly recommend it. And they had a story called The Wind Phone. And that was just too interesting a title for me to ignore. So I clicked on that link and read all about it. And there's actually a Japanese gardener called Mr. Atiru. And he built this gorgeous garden on his property and a phone booth. He actually built a phone booth, put it on his in his garden. And inside the phone booth, he placed a rotary phone, a disconnected rotary phone. And he used that phone actually to talk to his cousin who had passed the year before from cancer. And he called it the wind phone because he felt that his grief was being carried on the wind. And it was a way for him to connect and to heal his own grief. Then, of course, in 2011, we had the tsunamis, uh, the tsunami that hit the Japanese coastline and his village was lost a lot of people. I think it was 10% of the population they lost. So he opened up his garden to all of the other grieving Japanese people to come and use that phone booth. And they did. They came in vast numbers. And to this day around the world, thousands of people actually pilgrimage to this phone to talk to their lost loved ones. And I just thought, wow, like 
how amazing it is that we as people want to use our imaginations and they were using their imaginations to heal what actually had hurt them and to heal their own grief and during the time I was so I started writing that and during the time I was writing that um, my own nanny who I love dearly was diagnosed with cancer and very sadly in April of last year I actually lost her to cancer so then the book became quite personal and became a real way for me to I guess explore grief but just to reach out through it I suppose and say that there is so much hope and so much opportunity for connection even in our losses. Yeah indeed and I wanted to talk a little bit more about your own journey of loss in the writing of this book and that was a fascinating story that I had to google <laughs> once I'd read the book about about the wind phone I thought it was it was mm. just incredible you said you talk in your hometown of Boona and there were places mentioned that I recognized from your social media feed the duck junction and the story tree cafe so I wanted to ask you why Boona why was it important for you to set the story there yeah Boona to me is and what I would call an ordinary magic, so a magic that exists in our actual world. I think small towns, especially ones like Boona, just carry a magic. It's a magic of connection, of open arms, of always an ear ready to listen, and just a town and a people that have embraced me and embraced my family. And for me, that was super important because Boona is really the first place I've ever lived that has felt like home. So for me, when I was looking for a home for both my novels, it just seemed fitting that Boona would be the setting. And being that I live here, it just seemed such a golden opportunity to write the landscape and and write the peoples, although it is fictional and there are no actual people that live in Boona mentioned in the book. However, like you said, there are real stores. So yes, there's the Story Tree Cafe that actually exists. That's here in Boona and Duck Junction and many other little stores. So basically, I just said to my characters, here's Boona run them up. And so they did. And um, I just really wrote down their antics <laughs> pretty much and let them have fun in the main street of town. I needed quirky places and a beautiful people to embrace my characters. And so Bruna felt Bruna felt like a right fit. I know that, you know, in the time since you published A Lifetime of Impossible Days, you experienced a deep personal loss with your nanny passing. And I mm. can't help but see echoes of your own grief in Anne. Now, tell me if I'm being presumptuous here, but yes. is Anne inspired by you and your relationship with your own nanny? Absolutely. So I was looking for a name to give the other POV or the other point of view, the other main character who is a middle-aged woman. And I wanted to give her a name as a nod and an honour to my grandmother. And my grandmother's always went by the name Anne, and my middle name is Anne. And so it felt like a nice sort of honour, little nod, and a eternal hug, if you like, to give that character the name Anne. And I like to think that somewhere up there my nanny is smiling that her name has actually made it into a book. <laughs> yeah, so it is. it was very much inspired by my relationship with my grandmother. There is a, a grandmother in the book, and you know, Anne is actually going through a process of losing her grandmother. And so I gave a lot of my own story and my own relationship between myself and my my own nanny to Anne and her grandmother because it's such a beautiful relationship and it was so important to me. And I, I guess this book for me was really a way of holding on to my grandmother forever, but also a way of letting my nanny go. So it seemed seemed fitting that that relationship would be in there and it also just works so well with the themes I was already exploring. So yeah, there is. Anne is definitely 
Uh, and her relationship with her grandmother definitely modelled on my own. I was charmed by the appearance throughout the book of The Owner's Guide to Grieving, a book mm-hmm. where the townspeople were able to express their grief. So I wanted to ask you to tell me a little bit about this and why it was important to this story for you. I suppose I began to think as I was writing this story about Western culture and the way in which Western culture deals with grief. And really once we get past that funeral and you know, past the wake and perhaps even past the time where people stop bringing around the meatloaf, then people don't like to bring it up. You know, other people don't want to mention, you know, that to the person who's lost somebody, they don't want to mention about that loss or they don't want to mention about that grief for fear, I suppose, of either saying the wrong thing or bringing it up and hurting that person, which is in one way admirable, but in another way, What it really does is just leave that grieving person all on their own with no one to talk to about their loss. And also it it sort of unconsciously says we don't want to talk about your loss or we're not comfortable talking about your loss. So The Owner's Guide to Grieving is a little book that shows up in my book. So it's sort of a little book within a book. Um, And it's a magical book. It, It makes its way around town, always turning up to different townspeople as they need it. And I wanted to see what might happen if people had a private space where they could talk about their grief if they wanted to. So the townspeople often write little things in that book about their own grief, but also a way where they could read each other's stories and think to themselves, oh my goodness, see, I'm not alone and it is okay for me to talk about this. And so the townspeople in the book, The Owner's Guide to Grieving, actually start writing to each other in there and and encouraging each other as well. And I guess what I wanted to sort of say through that was it's okay to talk about this. In fact, it's really necessary. Um, There's no right or wrong way. But, you know, think about not leaving people alone in their grief. You know, even if you just simply say, hey, I know that you you lost someone really special to you. And if you ever want to talk about it, I'm here or or whatever. Just that, I guess, that little hand that reaches out and just says to other people you're not alone so that's what the owner's guide to grieving was it was just a way of saying to all the townspeople you're not alone I know that we've all experienced loss and this is a way that you can find some connection if you wish. Now you and I have talked before about this and certainly when we first chatted and since I've spoken to many authors about the concept of stories being a way to deal with grief and trauma, is it still the case for you that you write to process your emotions and to work towards some measure of healing? Yeah, I think it is. Um, very unconsciously, I don't start out that way. I usually start out with a little seed of an idea or a character that speaks to me. But very quickly, my own stories and my own emotions become quite enmeshed with the characters. And I find that quite healthy because it's a really safe space. Story is a really safe space to experience big emotions. It's there on the page. We can close it. We can close that book whenever it becomes overwhelming, but we can come back to it as well when we want that connection. So I think story is particularly magical in that way and magical realism even a step further because magical realism creates sort of a a fantastical and safe space to look at these big emotions in a different way but also in a way that is a bit whimsical and provides hope and becomes therefore not so in your face as perhaps a story that more closely followed reality. So I definitely get involved in my books. I don't know any other way to write. I feel that I don't want to write unless I can turn up on the pages and show a little of who I am and 
and a little of what it means to me to be human. So my stories always end up being vulnerable and I think quite raw, but in a way that I'm happy to put out there to people. Now, we talked a little bit about Anne. As I said earlier, you know, there was certainly echoes of you and your life in Anne. So I wanted to talk now a little bit about Enoch, your 10-year-old protagonist. Mm. Being inspired by a real-life person. A uh, little Enoch is a bit of a mix of a few real-life people, actually. I think he carries the pain and grief of my own little girl, so the own that little person that sort of lives inside me. She had some things to say and I gave them to Enoch. But also I've got a middle son whose name is Cyrus and he is just this big-hearted, out-of-the-box, beautiful character himself. And a lot of the things that he says and and does or has said and done in the past, I just gave those to Enoch because it just so beautifully fitted the character that I wanted to show through Enoch who himself is very quirky and very outside of the box. So Enoch, for example, has a coconut that he has fallen in love with. (laughs) And that's a true story. My own son Cyrus actually had a coconut, which is still with us. Uh, that he deeply loved and cared about. So little things like that made it into the book. Yeah, I loved that. And I thought that might have been the case, but I didn't want to assume or presume. But yeah. I have heard about Coco the Coconut before. <laughs> those those three boys in the book, so Enoch and then he's got two brothers, an older brother Jonas and then a younger brother Nipper, those three boys really quite closely mimic my own three sons, although my own three sons are much older now than, than the, the boys' characters in the book. Very much the personality of those three boys in the book mimics quite closely the personality of my own sons. And, you know, I've had the joy and the pleasure of mothering these three boys, and, and I still do. And I just I wanted to also just put in there, like, I guess a bit of a... A nod to motherhood and what it means to mother boys and be in the midst of boys with their big emotions and their beautiful big souls. So, yeah. Yeah, fantastic, beautiful. Tab, many who know you or like me who've who've become acquainted with you via your social media accounts will understand when I say you take a very active role in marketing your books. Mm. For months now, we've been seeing gorgeous images of vintage treasures, old phones, colourful ladybirds and rainbow lollipops. And as we were talking a little bit before, before we started recording, I was the recipient of a most delightful box of treasures that included my very own vintage Christian Dior dress pattern, some Emporium tea, pre-loved little golden books, an antique key with some vintage fabric and lace. My goodness! (laughs) Not to mention the rainbow army of ladybirds that populated that box. You know, the work that went into the, the into the pre-release media campaign and marketing campaign was phenomenal and which resulted in your book going to the top of the Tokyo Fiction must-have pre-orders list. I guess I wanted to ask you about your marketing strategy, how you yeah. go about doing that. What's your approach? So very, very early on in my author journey, before I even had a first book out, I decided that I wanted to be me, that I didn't want to do anything that wasn't authentically me and that included the way in which I showed up on social media So for me, when I market, I'm not actually thinking about shoving my book under people's noses. I'm thinking about connection because to me, that's what marketing is. It's just a connection or a communication between me and the readers who would like my work. And that's easy. If you think about it as communication, well, I love to talk. I love to chat and I love to meet new people. So that seemed easy to me. And once I thought of marketing as just communication and connection, then it was easy to know what to post because it was simply like, you know, 
come inside, follow my imagination and here's a little of my life and how it relates to my writing and here's the wonderful animals that pervade my world and <laughs> show up in my books and here, you know, as as is appropriate, here's a little of my children. I always ask permission before sharing anything about them um, with my with my boys and you know if you go on my social media you'll see there's a little video of Cyrus actually talking about his coconut and he super enjoyed sharing about that so marketing for me is just about being yourself because I think we're all so sick of fakeness and I think we're tired of adverts and companies pushing products and buy 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 I think we're tiring of that rhetoric so when you show, you know, just for me showing up on social media wasn't about getting anyone to buy anything. It was just about sharing who I am and saying, hey, you know, come with me. I've got some fun I want to share with you and here's some encouragement I want to share with you or whatever. And that, so there, there I am on social media. And so then it's really easy to keep up because you're not having to keep up anything fake. You're not having to pretend to be somebody you're not. And my books naturally flow out of that and so so does my social media. So I just have a ton of fun with marketing. I just absolutely love it. Yeah, and the more imaginative and creative I can be, the better. And God bless Penguin. They are, they just come along for the journey now. They just um they literally are just like, Yeah, that sounds fantastic, you know. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> so it's great I know you say it's not work to you because that's that's who you are but it is still effort thank you yeah look it is effort I'm I'm not going to lie if you want to put some serious time into getting your work out there then that is effort I guess I thought early on you know I've it's taken so many years to write these books I don't just want to put them out there and just randomly hope that my readership find them I want to be active in helping my readership to find them because there are so many beautiful books that are published, you know, every month. So why would mine stand out and why should somebody part with their hard-earned dollars to read my book? And so I think it's that connection. If someone goes, oh, you know, I've heard a little bit about her or I've seen a little bit of her feed, I'd love to read what, you know, read her book or, or explore, explore and experience that, then, you know, then they'll, they're more likely to pick it up. But um, yeah, it is it is work and I am quite disciplined about the time that I spend on social media and just that, just that I'm not there all the time, that there's, you know, there's that point where I'm not actually working. <laughs> it is work, but it is enjoyable. Tom, you know that there are many writers out there who listen to this podcast, many who are listening to this and wondering how you manage to be writing these wonderful stories, raising your family, doing all this incredible marketing and posting on social media. So in my case, what would you say to them? Oh, yeah. Look, two things. One, I am fortunate that I am writing full time, so I'm not writing around another job. So that does afford me quite a few extra hours in the day. But I would just say to people to just do what you can, that whatever you do do does actually matter and sometimes we need to hear that because we think that we're putting things out there into the void but remember a great deal of people that come across you will will not comment will not even like it but they will read it and they will interact with whatever it is that you're putting out there so you know keep going there's been many times where a lovely little whisper from my husband just saying this does matter keep being who you are and showing up in however whichever way you know however you can you don't have to have massive marketing dollars behind a book to get it out there. I certainly don't have massive dollars behind my book. So, 
you can still the things that you do do matter they do make a difference and get out there and just be yourself but also don't beat yourself up if you don't have six hours a day to write and produce books and produce you know social media images so don't if you only have you know one hour once a week then use that to your full advantage and do what you can do and and give yourself grace and space to say that's enough I am enough and what I am doing is enough. Tab, what do you know about yourself as a writer that you wished you'd known before you were published? Oh, so many things. Um, I think the main thing that I know now is that it's perfectly okay to be my messy, imperfect self. That Tab has a space here in this world and it's okay for her to show up. When I was first writing, I read so many how-to writing books and they're all wonderful and I do recommend many of them. However, it made me feel that there was only one right way to write a book. And I'm sure that probably wasn't even the author's intent. But after you've read, you know, four, five, six, ten of them, and they're all sort of saying the same thing, you start to think, well, that's the only way to produce creative work. And you, I anyway lost sight of the fact that those people were not me. I'm the, I am my own creativity that lives within me and therefore the way I show up and create is going to be really different. I wish I would have known that because I wouldn't have spent so many years trying to plot my books because I thought that was an appropriate professional way to write mm-hmm. and then absolutely hating it. For me, when I plot, the characters inside my head just go, see you later, <laughs> we're not showing up. That sounds like a year 12 assignment and we don't want to do it. So for me, it completely steals all my creativity and imagination. And, of course, you can't write without that. So for me, it was never going to work, whereas for other people, plotting works beautifully for them and that helps them to stay on track, et cetera, et cetera. So I wish I would have known it's okay to be exactly who I am and to create books and work exactly the way in which I create them and just stop trying to be somebody else, even if I thought those people were wonderful. Just be yeah. me. Wonderful advice. Thank you so much. And what would you like most for people to take away from this book? I would love um, for people to feel just that little less alone in the world, you know, whether we've lost a grandparent or a spouse or a child or whatever, um, we've all experienced loss. So you may not specifically have experienced the losses of the characters in the book but everyone knows what it means to have lost something important to them and I guess at the end of my book if people read it and felt just that little less alone and also just you know that invitation is extended to people to connect in whatever way is meaningful for them in their own grief and to perhaps reach out and talk if that's meaningful for them you know at the end of the book I actually invite people to write their own entry into the book of grieving So perhaps that's just going to be for their eyes only or perhaps they want to share that with people around them. But just that thought of you don't have to be alone in whatever hurts you. Tab, congratulations once again on the publication of this beautiful book. May it fly off the shelves, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Thanks so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to be here and chat with you and all the people listening. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.